0: Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. You can subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast, at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite download service, and never miss the great content we offer. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Jackie Witt, Associate Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and the Editor-in-Chief for War Room. So one of the questions that has always fascinated me about military history, and one of the reasons I became a military historian, is one that every society in every place and every time has had to answer. And that is, who will serve in uniform and on what terms? And there are lots of different answers to this question. Uh, In the United States, we've seen an ebb and flow between preferring volunteers, uh, venerating the citizen soldier... Uh, and requiring conscription or a draft in times of significant person power requirements. For the last 40 years or so, a little more than that, the United States has relied exclusively on volunteers to fill its enlisted and officer ranks. But it also acknowledges that conscription may be necessary in the future, hence the Selective Service Act, which requires male U.S. citizens to register for potential compulsory military service. But now, the fact that the Selective Service Act excludes women from the requirement uh, is receiving increasing scrutiny. So to talk about these developments, uh, I'm pleased today to have a veteran of the War Room podcast back in our virtual studio. Dr. Kara dixon Vuick is the Lance Corporal Benjamin W. Schmidt Professor of War, Conflict, and Society in 20th Century America at Texas Christian University. She is a leading scholar on women's history and U.S. military history. You can look for her two previous episodes on the War Room podcast with us, uh, one that she recorded with me about her book, The Girls Next Door, which is about women's work as entertainers with the U.S. military. And she did an on-writing podcast with Mike Nyberg and her husband, Jason. Uh, So, Kara, it's great to have you back with us at the War Room today. Thanks for having me, Jackie. It's great to be back. All right, so let's jump right in. And you're a historian, so I'm going to ask you a historical context question first, which is that, you know, for most Americans today, I think when we talk about the draft, they associate it most closely with the American War in Vietnam. And, you know, the end of that war brings the end of the draft and the introduction of the All-Volunteer Force and the Selective Service Act. Uh, So can you talk a little bit about the political and social implications of this shift to the All-Volunteer Force?
1: Absolutely. There were a lot of political and social implications, broadly speaking, um, but a lot that were particular for women um, and a lot that had um, would have a relationship with the questions we're going to talk about today in terms of who serves and on what terms. Um, you know, as you said, the Vietnam War sort of brought together a lot of critiques of conscription, particularly critiques of the ways that conscription was racially um, racially based and introduced a lot of class inequities with deferments. Um, the opposition to the Vietnam War itself brought a lot of, of opposition to conscription, There's actually a great book I wanted to mention, Amy Rutenberg's Rough Draft, talks about a lot of the opposition to conscription, not just in the Vietnam War, but also before that. But actually, as another great book, um, Beth Bailey argues in America's Army, it wasn't necessarily the protest against the Vietnam War that forced Nixon to end conscription. It was actually the influence of free market advisors who argued to Nixon that, Putting the military on the free market would force it to be more fair; that it would be more appealing to people. Um, and they knew that if they switched to an all-volunteer force, that they would have to depend on women. And so the military knew that they were going to need to expand women's military presence if they ended conscription, not just um, in terms of numbers, but also in terms of women's roles in the military. Um, and so when the all-volunteer force came in in '73 the number of women started to increase. Um, They'd actually planned to double the number of women in the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Um, They planned to increase the number of women in the Marine Corps by 40%. Uh, They knew that women, in many ways, made the volunteer force possible, in part because they were cheaper to recruit than men, um, and they brought up the overall test scores of the military. And so, thereafter, sort of Overall, for the next few decades, women women's percentage increased, and today it's about 17% of the active duty force.
0: So I think this brings us to a really important um, question about the way that the All Volunteer Force and the Selective Service Act, you know, work work together. And what it, what it has done is has drastically increased the number of women, you know, in service. It's increased opportunities, all sorts of things. But the Selective Service Act mm-hmm. uh, really does distinguish between the service of men and the, and the or the potential service of men and the potential service of women. So, you know, when a U.S. citizen turns 18, uh, one, you know, about one half of the population has to do something uh, that the other half doesn't have to, doesn't have to do. And noncompliance has consequences, right? If you are a male who doesn't register. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how this requirement, the justification for only making males register came about? And then we'll talk a little bit about, you know, the implications of that.
1: Right. And, and I think it's important to say, too, that not only are women excluded, but they're prohibited from registering. Right. Women have tried to register before, but the Military and Selective Service Act, the language of that act actually prohibits women from even attempting to register. Um, and so it's they're, they're sort of doubly excluded. <laughs> not only are you not required, but you can't do it even if you want to. Um, and that goes back to you know a very long history in the United States of men being expected to serve um, and women not, which of course is rooted in centuries of different gender roles for men and women. But that's not to say that the United States hasn't debated the possibility of drafting women or hasn't even come close to drafting women at different times. And of course, that's Stay tuned. In like three years, maybe I can come back and be on the podcast to talk about the book that I'm trying to write on that subject. Um, but most directly, the requirement today for men, but not women, to register stems from President Carter's reintroduction of the requirement to register in 1980, um, and that came in the wake of the Soviet invasion of of Afghanistan. Um, Carter thought that it would be a useful show of force to bring back registration, sort of to say to the world, you know, we have a ready. Force. We've got a list. We can turn to that if we need to conscript um, soldiers. And initially, he announced that he was going to ask Congress to reinstate selective service. And a few weeks later, he announced that he was going to ask Congress to revise the law to require women to register. Carter um, was a bit of an optimist in this regard. (laughs) Um, He was very much a believer in equal rights and in the Equal Rights Amendment. and so when he proposed that women register, he did it in spite of all advice to the contrary. Right? His advisors told him this is not um, a politically good move for you to make right now. Um, it's not going to work. It's not going to pass. Um, but Carter said, I believe this is the right thing to do. And he did it anyway. Now, of course, Congress writes the laws that um, operate the selective service system. And so Congress had to um, debate this Issue, you know, are we going to require women to register or not? And what I think is really interesting is that in the early seventies, when Congress had debated the Equal Rights Amendment, um, Congress had it had debated proposals that would have restricted the Equal Rights Amendment from applying to the military. Right, several opponents to the ERA had had proposed amendments that would have excluded the military, and would have meant that the military could still exclude women in whatever ways it wanted. But Congress overwhelmingly rejected those proposals. Um, And if you read the congressional reports um, and the record of debates about the Equal Rights Amendment, it was very clear in 1972 when they passed the ERA that they intended equal rights to incur equal obligations for women. They knew that if the ERA passed, Um, and was ratified by the state, which at that time, in 72, it looked like it would be, um, they knew that women would have to register. Congress was okay with that in 1972, but by 1980, Congress was definitely not okay with that, um, which is a sign of how swiftly um, and radically the tide had turned um, in terms of the ERA, women's rights, all of these sort of related issues. By 1980, the new right is coalescing largely around social-cultural issues, many of which are tied, of course, to um, sort of a backlash against the feminist movement of the 60s. And so you've got groups like Phyllis Schafly's Eagle Forum, the Coalition Against Drafting Women, all mobilizing opposition to registering women. Right now, Carter's proposal to register women had lots of bipartisan support. It had support from groups you might not expect, like the American Legion. Um, The Disabled American Veterans supported registering women. Um, But groups like the Eagle Forum, sort of these social conservative groups, quickly began to dominate the conversation. Um, And what they feared was that registration of women would erase all gender distinction. So in congressional hearings in March of 1980, the discussion over registering women Instead of being a discussion about mobilization needs, how women might serve, how women could serve, who would be needed in the first, say, 100 days, who would be needed in the first 200 days, that might have been the discussion that Congress would have had in a discussion about registration and selective service. But instead, what happens is that these groups like the Eagle Forum, the Coalition for Drafting Women, all dominate the congressional hearing and it turns into a discussion about women's sort of so-called nature, um, their inherent capability for creating life, that you know, women are supposed to create life, not destroy life. Um, there's a lot of very conventional sort of gender roles that get rolled out um, in these committee hearings. And it's interesting to me, even that Representative Marjorie Holt, who was on the House committee Um, that's debating these issues, is a member of the Coalition Against Drafting Women. So in hindsight, it seems like the hearing is sort of stacked before it it even begins. And so the proposal to register women died in committee. Congress in 1980 refused to require women to register um, a short eight years after it had essentially indicated that it was willing to do the opposite. So that's the the sort of legislative history of
0: why men and men only are today required to register. It's such an interesting idea that you can have congressional hearings ostensibly about one subject that turn into debates about a whole other thing, right? And that your, your point that they're not really talking right. about military readiness, effectiveness, et cetera, all of the language that we might think about uh, as being really salient today And they really are talking about these much broader social questions and cultural questions about Mm -hmm. gender roles, the role of the family and and society and women and men. Um, And so that it it strikes me as both interesting and not, not at all unusual that that, that, that happens (laughs) uh, in this, in this case. Um, So has this legislative Sort of peculiarity in this cultural moment from from nineteen eighty has it ever been challenged before? Um, what's
1: interesting is that it was also being challenged at that time. Um, you know, when Congress is having these hearings, they're they're also sort of conflating issues. They're not just talking about what you know, so supposedly what women are supposed to do and men are supposed to do and you know, can can we as a society, what are we going to do if women have to go defend men? Um, are we going to self-implode if that happens? Um, at the same time, they're conflating registration and conscription, um, which I think mm-hmm. often actually happens in debates today, um, that their assumption is that registration would immediately um, lead to conscription, to actually being conscripted into the military and inducted into the military. And they assume that Anyone who was registered would thus be conscripted and also sent straight into combat, right? And so they conflated conscription and combat in a military that at the time, 80% of roles were non-combatant right. roles. Um, so they're, they're conflating issues, but the, the combat issue is ultimately what became the legal rationale for excluding women, So at the same time that all of this is going on in Congress, a case had been moving through the courts that initially began as a protest against registration in in and of itself. Um, It was a Vietnam War case. There had been several of them, about a dozen um, cases in which men had challenged um, the requirement to register and essentially tacked on all kinds, as many legal Mm -hmm. rationales they could come up with. Um, But uh, by about 1980, the only legal argument that stood was sex discrimination. And the case was called, by then, was called Rosker v. Goldberg. Um, And by the time it reached the Supreme Court, it was essentially a case about sex discrimination. Um, And you can read a really great um, account of this this case in Linda Kerber's No Constitutional Right to be Ladies. Um, And she talks about how the case was ruled. Um, by the Supreme Court in June of 81, and essentially the court held that women are excluded from combat in the military, thus they can be excluded from registration. Again, conflating registration and conscription and combat. Um, So the court said if women are, women can be excluded from registration because they're excluded from combat. And that's the legal justification that stood since 1981.
0: And so now, right, astute listeners will understand where where the conversation heads, <laughs> which is women are no longer excluded from combat. Uh, the combat exclusions have been lifted. We have women, uh, not only is it theoretically possible, but it is possible possible uh, in that women are serving in combat roles right now. And so if that exclusion has gone, is there any legal justification now for excluding women from the selective service requirement?
1: (laughs) I guess the answer to that would be, it depends on who you (laughs) ask. (laughs) Um, But what I find really interesting as a historian is that the legal rationale has always been combat, right? And if we were videoing this, you could see I'm making air quotes right now, combat, right? Because the problem is that women's participation in combat has shifted radically even before 2015 when Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter said we're opening everything to women. Even before mm-hmm. then, women's roles in, quote, combat shifted radically, right? From 81 to, 19, to 2015, what did combat mean? Um, the answer to that changed changed wildly, right? Um, in 1978, the Secretary of Defense said combat was a geographic region. And he said very openly, if that's the definition and we think it is, then women have been in combat for a long time, right? But did combat then mean your um, your risk level, right? Did it mean that you had to be engaged in, in active engagement with the enemy? Was it likelihood of danger, right? What did combat and mean? And we've
0: seen that change right. over time, right? That The, the regulations mm-hmm. have changed even before 2015. Uh, and the reality on the right. ground didn't always, or in the air, as it were, or on ships didn't always... Right match what the regulation said, right? There were always sort of boundaries and seams and gaps that were going to be, you know, problems.
1: Right. And so women have been doing many of the things that they were not permitted to do in 81 long before we opened all combat roles to women. Um, And I think, you know, the Supreme Court, if you could sort of move them forward in time, might be quite surprised in, say, 1998 (laughs) (laughs) that women are doing all of these things they thought women weren't supposed to do. Um, and so I think that uh, sort of complicates the legal rationale for mm-hmm. um, the Rosker decision, even before today. When clearly, if women are included in combat um, in combat roles, then the, 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 sort of the legal rationale
0: is a bit a bit fluid now. Um, and so we have we have now a challenge to the Rosker decision. Uh, And it has, it's brought together, the only way I know how to put it is that it's, it's a strange bedfellow kind of, kind of case. So it has brought together uh, groups, including the National Coalition for Men and the American Civil Liberties Union, Uh, not two groups I'm used to saying like in the same sentence on the same, you know, same side of things. Right. Uh, So what is the, what's the claim that the current uh, legal challenge makes?
1: Well, essentially, the claim is the same claim that advocates have made since the 70s, and that is that it, the exclusion of women from registration violates men's Fifth Amendment rights to equal protection. Right? And that is the claim that was made in what became the Rosker v. Goldberg case. Um, it was a claim made by dozens of men um, in the Vietnam era. Um, and up through 1980 and 81. Um, so it's not a new argument um, and and essentially their case argues that with the combat restrictions gone, there's no no legal standing to exclude women from registration now. Um, and what I you know it it always strikes me as as sort of odd that these two groups have united again, but maybe it shouldn't because, The issue of registering women has often been bipartisan, Mm -hmm. and it's brought together groups from across the spectrum. Right? Um, The ACLU was involved in arguing um, in the Rosker case that the exclusion of 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 women violated men's rights. They've been doing this for a long time. Um, But what I what I also sort of want to talk about, and I'm I'm not an attorney. I'll just say that as a disclaimer. Um, So perhaps an attorney can explain this better. But the decision for Rosker was also being made in an era in which there was a lot of change in how courts handled sex discrimination cases, right? And this is what Kerber talks about in her book and provides a long um, sort of background to this. But essentially, this the case today argues that Rosker was incorrectly decided in eighty one, in part because it conflated conscription and combat by arguing that if you were conscripted, you would be sent to combat, which was not historically true and was not likely to have happened in 1981, so that was that was one flaw, um, you know. And that's just related to the United States military's sort of tooth-to-tail mm-hmm. ratio, which has been much more um, much, much more tail much broader than many <laughs> nations, <laughs> right? <laughs> Trailing along, uh, you know, very wide tail back here. Um, but they also argue that the Rosker decision was based on essentially the wrong rationale. Right. That the case was decided on whether including women in selective service was necessary. But what they argue is that the court should have asked that they essentially that the government should have had to prove that the exclusion of women was necessary for the purpose of national defense. Right. That including women would have perhaps imposed some administrative burdens on the military. Mm -hmm. Right. You've got more paperwork literally paperwork, probably in 81, to handle, (laughs) but that that administrative burden isn't enough to essentially discriminate against one group or another. And they argued that the government should have had to show the discrimination against women. And I don't mean that in sort of the way discrimination is usually used, but the exclusion of women as a class from registration, that they should have had to prove that that was necessary. And instead, the court Based its decision on whether they had to include women to accomplish national defense. Yeah.
0: So it's a it's a it's a le- it's a narrow sort of legal, like almost a semantic mm-hmm. question about how the cases argued and the logic behind it, which is right. which is different maybe from the substantive you know, moral, ethical, political arguments about whether or not it is right or whether or not it is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, and so I think this is, this is where so many people get frustrated with legal proceedings, right? Is that it's not, right. it's not, it's very rarely about whether something is right uh, in a, like, in sort of a righteous uh, gut feeling sense. And it's very much about how the case was argued, how it was decided. Um, do we imagine that this will, go to the Supreme Court?
1: Well, so yesterday um, the government had to respond. And, and again, writing this, the history of this in the future will be really interesting because we've now changed administrations, right? The prior administration, um, right? Prior administration wanted to defend the exclusion of women, right? The Trump administration wanted to exclude, wanted to defend that. The Biden administration now has essentially responded and said that the Supreme Court should not hear the case, but instead should let Congress decide, right? And in some ways, I think it's sort of a punt, Um, you know, let's just sort of delay this, let Congress decide. Um, We don't actually want the court to rule on the question. Um, But what they want is to let Congress sort of figure out what to do and Part of that is related to the National Commission on Military, National and Public Service, which was created um, in 2017. And last March, of course, right before COVID hit, <laughs> last March issued, or right as COVID was um, becoming a big issue, issued its report, which called for greater emphasis on military recruitment, um, more emphasis on public service, sort of VISTA, AmeriCorps, those kinds of programs, but also called for the registration of women, said the time is right um, to register women. And immediately after that report was issued, a bill was introduced in Congress called the Inspire to Serve Act, which would implement all of those things, um, including the registration of women. That's been sort of in committee for a year. And it's actually in about 17 committees, I believe it is, because of all the committees that touch on, on the issues um, but yesterday, just again, yesterday, two senators and two Republicans introduced a bill to abolish the selective service system. So you've got mm-hmm. competing sort of agendas and issues going on in Congress. And essentially, the government has said, let them handle it. Um, there's also some legalese stuff that the, the attorneys will have to <laughs> explain to the War Room <laughs> listeners here um, about standing and who can make these claims. But I, essentially, I think that the, the administration doesn't Want a ruling? Um, so imagine a scenario in which the Supreme Court said, "Yeah, this is this is a violation of men's Fifth Amendment rights." Then what happens, right? Then we have no selective service system. We can't have a system that's discriminatory. So,
0: so it sounds like part of the problem, right, is that the Supreme Court could rule, and if they ruled that it was a violation, the like you said, there's no selective service system. They can't. They can't make the law something it isn't, and so a legislative fix may be required in any case, uh, which seems like a challenge in the modern American, you know, political. Given the state of American political discourse and legislative, um, you know, working to working togetherness, do you see any other? Do you see any other way forward out of the out of the question or out of the mess?
1: You know, I really I really don't. Um, I cannot imagine in the United States of America in 2021 that we would have a, an obligation of male citizens that does not also apply to female citizens. I can't imagine um, that that would be allowed to continue. Now, whether selective service continues is another question entirely. Mm-hmm. And again, those two issues are sometimes conflated. But if selective service continues, I cannot imagine it being allowed to continue without women. Um, The military has said multiple times we think women should have to register. Um, they They phrase this as a matter of national security, right? If we are excluding half of our population, we are excluding half of the talent of the population. The military also sees this as a matter of equity, Um, women's groups see this as a matter of equity. Now we have a men's rights group seeing this as a matter of equity. You know, there are lots of symbolic and practical issues, I think, Mm -hmm. um, in favor of the issue. Now, you still have some opposed to that. Um, Folks who oppose registration on any grounds, period, are absolutely opposed to the inclusion of women in a system they already see as as inherently problematic. Um, Cultural conservatives are going to come out um, again in opposition to this. And some argue, even proponents of women in the military argued that the military needs to deal with sexual harassment and assault first. (laughs) You know, I think Jackie Spears made that argument. Um, Men also face sexual assault and harassment in the military. So, you know, all of these issues get wrapped up, but I can't imagine a system that continues that, um,
0: that doesn't include women. So I think with that on that point uh, about the 21st century and where we are and where we where we might imagine the U.S. military going in the future, we will we'll wrap up our podcast for today. A couple of really important points stand out. One is the importance of distinguishing between registration, conscription, and combat. That those are not. Synonymous, and we ought to be very careful about the claims that we are making about what will be required and what will likely happen. Uh, the second is really a, one about military, you know, arguments about military effectiveness, military readiness, uh, and the way that those intersect with broad cultural and social norms that we hold. And often we have norms that are held in tension, right, between gender equality and arguments about equity. And then arguments uh, about, you know, roles and who should be doing what and rights and obligations uh, that go that go along with that. Uh, so, Kara, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast this afternoon. This was fun. Thanks, Jackie. Great. And with that, I'm going to wrap up and thank all of our listeners as well for tuning in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our podcasts and send us suggestions as well for future podcasts. Please subscribe to A Better Piece on your favorite podcast aggregator. And once you've done that subscription, please rate and review it as well so that other people can find a better piece. We're always interested in growing this community so that we have more people tuning in for conversations just like this one. And although this conversation is over, we will be back with others and we look forward to returning to the podcast with you. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Jackie Witt.